The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Please turn over in the Word of God to Acts chapter 6. And if you're using a pew Bible today, that is page 1086, 1086, and that's Acts chapter 6. The hinge that turns history is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in his life, he told his disciples what was just read by our brother, that to be great is actually to be a servant, indeed a slave, because he, the eternal God the Son, the Son of Man, came to give his life a ransom for many. Now when he said that historically, it was before the cross. Imagine what his followers thought after seeing the cross. After seeing the cross, they saw not merely an example, though surely it is at least that, but they saw the reason you don't need to strive to make your own name great. Because the one who's eternally great gave up his greatness and then imputes it to sinners who are unworthy by which we'll be known forever in the name Jesus. Therefore, why would we want to make much of ourselves when God gave everything to make us his. And so by that power, now the church is launched, what Jesus promised. And it's launched by those who heard him make this promise. And in the book of Acts, we receive the story of our church family. Think about this. For thousands of years, people believed in God before Jesus had come. Now there's just a short book that tells us how everything changed after Jesus came, and it's the book of Acts. The book of Acts is programmatic. That is to say, it's a model for the church. But it's also transitional. It is history that records some things that are not repeatable. For example, in Acts 1, they determine what disciple will replace Judas. Obviously, we're not supposed to do that. But in Acts, they also explain how the church is formed and functions. And that is what we follow. And that's what we'll see today in Acts 6, verses 1 through 7. Every generation of the church must return to how Christ has formed the church by his own life, death, and resurrection. And the church is to be led by two recognized offices, offices both of servants, The first one is called pastor, elder, overseer. This is the office that we normally call pastor. It is still an office of sacrificial service. And the other office is the office of deacon. And that's the one we're focusing on today in Acts 6, 1 through 7. Let me pause to make this obvious point more clear. Those are the only two offices God has given the church. He has not given them any others. The Baptist faith and message says that clearly. In this sentence, the church has only two scriptural officers. This means, by the way, that in the last 2,000 years, we've added many additional things to the church that can be helpful, like ushers or greeters or Sunday school teachers. These wonderful things, though, are not offices in the church. And nothing else we add should replace or undercut the actual offices that God has given to the church. Those are the ones Christ gave that are sufficient. Now, the two terms, office, 
The two offices, excuse me, pastor, elder, overseer, and deacon can easily be conflated and be confused. To be frank, many Southern Baptist churches, including Emmanuel, has at times conflated and confused these two offices. So let me explain why we're doing this today. Last year, we had the blessing of adding a new pastor elder. And so we had an ordination service. In that service, the candidate sat down here and was asked many theological questions. The reason for that is because the Bible says that one who is an elder must be able to refute false teaching and uphold sound doctrine, Titus 1.9. 1 Timothy 3.2 also says the one in the office of elder must demonstrate an ability to teach. 1 Timothy 4.14 says that the council of elders lays hands on an elder after 1 Timothy 5.22. They have deemed that he is not a novice. Now those requirements are not requirements for the office of deacon. Meaning a deacon does not have to sit up front and be grilled theologically. All the deacons said, amen. (laughs) So the offices actually have different qualifications because they have different responsibilities. That is why last year I purposely did not have a deacon ordination service because I knew we needed to first see an elder ordination service. And that is why this year I'm calling what we're doing a deacon appointment service. You might say, Josh, that's just semantics. It is semantics, but it's semantics for a reason. So that we'll be able to keep clear in our heads. Elder and deacon are not the same offices. They do not have the same qualifications. They do not have the same responsibilities. So using a different term will help us remember that. Today is a deacon appointment Sunday. So today we do what Acts 6 tells us to do. Acts 6 tells us that deacons should be appointed. We'll see in verse 6, we're to lay our hands on them and pray over them, which is exactly what we're going to do this morning. Acts 6, 1 through 7 is understood as the origin of the office of deacon. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson writes this, Although the seven men who are appointed in Acts 6, 1 through 7 are not explicitly called deacons, few doubt this is the beginning of what came to be called the diaconate. So if you received a bulletin this morning, I have seven movements of the passage on it, seven movements of Acts 6, 1 through 7. And these will help us as a church understand more clearly what the office of deacon is and what it is not. Number one on your bulletin, deacons exist to serve the congregation. And this will be the overarching point of Acts 6, 1 through 7. We'll see it as we go. And that quickly actually leads us to number two. They won't all be that fast. But number two, deacons promote unity in the flock. Look now in God's word, Acts 6, verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. So now we know the setting upon which deacons are added. They are originated. That phrase, now in these days, let me give you a quick flyover as to what is happening. God, through Jesus, God the Son, has promised that he would build his church. But he actually does it in Acts 2. In Acts 2, Peter preaches a powerful message empowered by the Holy Spirit, calling people to repent and believe. And God saves thousands in one day. They form together in Jerusalem as a congregation. In chapter 3 and 4, Peter and John continue to preach boldly. They're imprisoned and they're beaten for it. But then the people of God start sharing everything in common. 
in order to meet one another's needs. Keep this in mind when you read the Bible. Acts Church, the original church, is almost nothing like the American church. Almost nothing. So in Acts, the believers counted a privilege to be beaten up. Um, actually, let me show you that. Look up a couple of verses in Acts 5. This is in verse 38. Gamaliel, the Pharisee, speaking, he says, In the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. He's talking about Peter and John. Leave them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took this advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. This is Peter and John and some of the other church leaders. And they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then notice verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, the name Jesus. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Those are the these days that they're referring to. God's people boldly sharing the gospel, even at threat of punishment or imprisonment or death. And in that time, through bold faithfulness, verse 1, look again in Acts 6, what was God doing? He was increasing their number. Now, how has Satan always worked when God is growing his church and Satan can't succeed on an external attack? Satan moves his attack internal. So notice how the verse continues, verse 1. Now a complaint arises inside the church. God's growing the church, so now the complaint moves within. And it's a complaint, notice verse 1 continues, by the Hellenist, which are Greek-speaking Jews, arose against Hebrews, these are Aramaic-speaking Jews, because their widows, that is the Greek-speaking ones, were being neglected in the daily distribution. So the complaint is this. There is a section of the church demarcated by their culture that is being overlooked in the daily distribution of basic needs. So notice then that what follows is the origination of the office of deacon. So why are the deacons originated? To promote unity in a flock that would otherwise fracture. So know this, deacons, this is very important. God has put your office into existence in part so that you will bring together fissures that would otherwise fracture in the body of Christ. In fact, deacons have an incredibly important job to douse potentially dangerous fires. Matt Smethurst writes this, Deacons should be those who muffle shockwaves, not make them reverberate further. Contentious persons make poor deacons because they only compound the kind of headaches deacons were meant to relieve. The best deacons, therefore, are far more than business managers or handymen. They are persons with fine-tuned conflict radars. They love solutions more than drama, and they rise to respond in creatively constructive ways to promote the harmony of the whole church. So deacons are originated to create harmony where there would otherwise be disharmony. I want to point out something for us as a congregation that's important also. Notice verse 1 said, there's a daily distribution And that's a daily distribution for the church family. Meaning that the New Testament church is not making a food pantry for the community, but daily bread for their own people. Now we tend to miss that because in America we're so blessed that many of us do not have daily 
practical or economic needs. But just notice that the focus of the congregation is rightly to do good to all men generally, but especially the household of faith, Galatians 6.10. The church's focus has always been, first, how we can give sacrificially for the good of the whole body. Acts 4 says in verse 34, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds and laid it at the apostles' feet to be distributed to each one of them as they had need. All right, so deacons are here to promote unity. But one of the things that lets you know you have a deacon, now as we transition back to Acts 6 verse 1, is a deacon notices within the church the neediest among us. So look again in Acts 6 verse 1. Who in particular is being neglected? Widows. Widows who don't have spouses, probably don't have family, and have no means for their own provision. So another characteristic of a deacon is his awareness within the congregation of those most susceptible or most vulnerable. Deacons are concerned about the practical needs of their brothers and sisters primarily. Now number three on your handout. Deacons alleviate the burden on pastors or elders. And we're going to see this in verses two through four. Look now in verse two. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. These verses are so instructive, we're going to slow down a lot. First notice in verse 2, who is making the summoning? The summoning is called by the twelve. Now the twelve are the twelve disciples, minus Judas, replaced with Matthias in Acts chapter 1. At first you might think, well that's not repeatable. We don't have the twelve anymore. But in what function were the twelve behaving in Acts And the answer is elder or pastor. They tell us that explicitly. In 1 Peter 5, verse 1, Peter writes, Exhort the elders, I, a fellow elder, am a witness. In 2 John, verse 1, John describes himself as the elder of the church. So Peter and John are the two that were just imprisoned and then released. They're the ones here in Acts that are functioning as elders. So who's summoning the elders? The pastors are summoning the congregation. Notice who they're summoning. The text says the full number of the disciples. Do you know how many disciples were at the Church of Jerusalem at this point? Acts 4 verse 4 says there were over 5,000 men. Acts 5 verse 14 says that there were more multitudes added. That means the church in Jerusalem was between five to 10,000 people. They had elders and deacons, and they had enough. Sometimes it's so hard for us to understand this because in America, as our church grows, we think, how can we franchise? In Acts, when the church grows, they think, how can we faithfully plant more churches? So Acts, the church grows 
gathers right now in Solomon's portico outside the temple, but they have thousands that come together. And when the church is summoned, they all make it. Now imagine if members' meetings brought all members. That would be incredible. But in the New Testament church, that's how it worked. Here's why. In a culture in which your leaders have been imprisoned for being a believer, do you think you'll have nominal believers in your church? Of course you won't. So everyone who's there thinks of themselves as genuinely a Christian committed to the body. And so when the body gathers, they all gather. The NASB puts it this way. The 12 summon the congregation. The CSB writes, the 12 summon the whole company. So when the company convenes, all of the Christians come because there are no casual ones. And then they make a decision. And look at what the decision is based on in verse 2. The twelve, functioning as the first elders, say it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Verse 4 says they need to devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Notice then the first elders are saying God has a division of responsibility for his two offices. Those in the office of pastor elder are to be devoted, notice verse 4, to the ministry of the word Those in the office of deacon are to be devoted to the ministry of deeds. And what God has joined together, let no man separate, because they need one another. Now here's the danger we have reading this as Americans today. When we read verse 2 and it says we should not give up preaching the word of God to serve tables, that may read pompously to us. As if they're saying serving tables is inferior. But that's because when we hear the phrase serve tables, we think of restaurants. But who would the apostles have most recently seen serve a table? The answer is Jesus at the Last Supper. Therefore, in their mindset, serving tables was an extremely important spiritual act. The deacons are unifying the church through the service of tables. They are bringing together disparate strands through the service of tables. They are keeping the body a body through the service of tables. Now this, by the way, doesn't mean that elders can never serve tables or that deacons can never minister the word. Notice the word devote in verse 4. It means what each is primarily devoted to, not meaning that they're never going to ever overlap. But there is a devotion where one is devoted to one and the other is devoted to the other. Again, D.A. Carson is worth quoting. He writes, We may not have the twelve today, but pastors, elders, overseers have inherited this exact ministry of the word and prayer. That includes not only teaching others, but also doing the serious study and preparation and intercession that stand behind good teaching and preaching. There will always be a hundred things to distract you, Do not be distracted from what is central. So there is a distinction between what the offices are required to do, which is why we do well to be careful in our language. Again, Matt Smenhurst is worth quoting. He writes, The larger principle of a deacon's role is they desire to do anything in the church's life that would otherwise distract or derail the elders from their primary responsibility. Smethurst concludes, he writes, Show me a church with distracted pastors and a derailed mission, 
and I'll show you a church without effective deacons. When I grew up, I had the blessing of seeing this in my own home because my father had the joy of serving as a deacon for a number of decades. And I remember as a little kid after church, and when I was growing up, just to be honest, we went to church 16 times a month. I remember I I kept track. (laughs) So we had Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and we often made choir. And I don't remember missing really any of those, nor do I remember thinking that it was okay to miss any of those. So we were at those. And I remember on Sunday nights, um, everybody else seemed to be leaving except us. And I remember looking at my dad being a somewhat annoyed, you know, nine or 10 year old kid and saying, dad, why are we still here? And dad explained to me, son, because I'm a deacon and because the pastors over there are trying to minister to these people after the proclamation of the word. And so our role is to lock up the building so that they can do that. And that stuck with me now for many decades. Because I saw that his posture was, how can I alleviate and assist those tasks to minister the word? That's the heart of a deacon. A deacon's heart is to alleviate and assist. Number four, deacons serve Christ's disciples in practical matters. We would expect then that deacons are doing practical, logistical, deed ministry for the good of the body. We've explained that much already, though. So now number five. Lest you think that their practical service means that they're unspiritual. Don't miss number five. Deacons exemplify Christ-like service. Look in verse three. The leaders tell the church, pick out from among you, notice, seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. We read earlier together 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13, which give spiritual characteristics of those who would serve in the office of deacon. But here we have a summary. The congregation picks out, notice fellow members. When it says pick out from among you, that means these people are already believers. They're part of the body. So they're not picking outside of the church. They're picking from within the church. But they have a good reputation even beyond the church. They are able to be chosen because they are full of the Spirit and they have wisdom. Commenting on this verse, Darrell Bach writes, full of the Spirit in this context means their lives are directed by God's Spirit so that they are spiritually sensitive and make good judgments. So deacons are men who have an exhibition of spirituality, of godliness, of a willingness to obey the Lord. And then notice the last word in verse 3. Deacons are appointed to fulfill a duty. Therefore, it is a responsibility. It is something that's tangibly done. And so deacons are not so much a position, but a posture. Let me explain why I think that's important. Sometimes there's a culture within a church that the way to hit spiritual benchmarks is to be put in one of the offices. And so if you're godly enough, you'll be named a deacon. And if you're not a deacon, then you must not be godly. But that's not what the text is saying. Many people are exceedingly godly who may not be in the office, who are unable to serve for physical reasons. But those who are godly and able to serve and recognized are in the dutiful office of deacon because it is an office that does things for the body. Now, number six, notice the way deacons are selected. Deacons are picked out from among the congregation, but they are appointed by the elders. So verse three, 
the church is to pick out from among themselves deacons. But notice the end of verse 3 says, we, that is the apostle elders, will appoint them to the duty. And then notice verse 5, the church is involved. That what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. That description, I think, describes all who follow. Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. All these names, by the way, are Hellenistic, meaning all the deacons who were chosen were chosen from the group that had felt overlooked. It didn't remain that distinct, but it went beyond that. It was very shrewd and wise of the congregation to lead that way. Verse 6 then, these are set before the apostles by the church. And then notice then the pastor, elder, apostles pray and lay their hands on them. So exactly what verse 3 said they would do is what they do. They carry out the process to the letter. And because of that now, number 7. Deacons affect the spiritual flourishing of the whole church. Look in verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase as verse 1 began. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And this is a real shocker because they were just beaten by the Jewish religious leaders. A great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Thus, the role of deacon is so important that it actually allows the church to flourish in its mission. It is because of the deacon's faithful service, often behind the scenes, that the gospel can advance exponentially through the church. So let's recap some of the big principles we've seen. What are deacons here to do? They are here to serve the flock. How do we know what makes a deacon distinctive? They exemplify service. They are tested. They are recognized. They are seen as examples of service. What impact will deacons have? They promote unity. They protect from frissures and distractions. What blessing do they have on the leadership? They alleviate the burden on pastors and elders. In fact, that's part of their motivation to serve. They care for the church's physical needs, and they have an eye for the neediest among the congregation. If I was to put it in a phrase, I'd say it this way. Deacons are recognized, reliable servants. So that God's church can be congregationally governed, elder-led, and deacon-served. But the book of Acts tells us more about these deacons. And so we get a better picture of what deacons are like in their everyday life. In fact, two of the deacons listed here become the focus of Acts for the chapters that immediately follow. One of them is Stephen. Stephen's the first deacon named. And what happens with Stephen at the end of Acts 6? He powerfully proclaims Christ while being stoned to death. Lest he think that his message fell on deaf ears, by the time the book of Acts ends in Acts chapter 21, the apostle Paul says that he came to Christ because Stephen faithfully shared the gospel while Paul stood holding the coats. Amazing the impact that deacons have for the gospel's advance just in their everyday life. The other deacon listed becomes the focus of Acts in Acts chapter 8, and that's Philip. When we read about Philip, Philip's not preaching in a podium or a platform. He's not an upfront leader. He's just an everyday Christian serving wherever the Spirit leads him. The Spirit leads him to an Ethiopian eunuch. Philip shares the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch is baptized probably to indicate the formation of a new church. 
By the time we get to the end of the book of Acts, we read about Philip, that he, that he is called Philip the Evangelist in Acts 21, verse 8. We read about him and his four daughters. So deacons are not people with limited impact. They're people with expansive impact because they live out the gospel in their everyday life. But what's, what makes deacons then distinct from the role of elder pastor in the life of the church? And here's the short answer that we read in the Bible. Then in the New Testament, deacons do not convene, meet, or deliberate as a body. So in Acts 6, they're initiated to serve the church's practical needs. And we read about their individual ministry, like Stephen and Philip. But what we never, ever, ever read in the Bible anywhere is deacons convening together as a body or having a deacon's meeting or deliberating to make decisions. That never happens in the New Testament. But there is a body that does deliberate to make decisions for the church, and that's called elders in the Bible. So in Acts 11, we read about the ears of the church coming together in verse 30 and making a decision through elders. In Acts 14, verse 23, we read that Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in every single church. And then in Acts 15, when a decision needs to be made, we read in verse 6, the apostles and elders gathered to consider this matter. And then throughout Acts 15, the elders convened to make a decision, and we read in Acts 16, verse 4, they delivered to the church the observance, the decision that had been reached by the apostles and the elders. In Acts 21, we read that when Paul comes back to Jerusalem, he meets with James and the elders. In Acts 20, we read that Paul tells the elders in Ephesus of their responsibility to oversee the church of God. And then when we get to the New Testament letters, we read about the elders' responsibility to lead in 1 Timothy 5, 17, in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5, in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and in Titus 1, 1 through 9. So here's what's different about what the New Testament says versus what the church in America has done for the last roughly 40 or 50 years. The church in America has started to borrow from corporate business models or from American governance. But I have really good news for you. God has a better plan than us borrowing from greedy American companies or corrupt human government. And his plan is the New Testament. And in the New Testament, his plan is that deacons are reliable, practical servants who do not desire to take control. And his plan is that pastors are humble leaders who sacrifice for the flock. And his plan is that the congregation loves and sacrificially cares for one another. And when the New Testament church behaved that way, they could have 5,000 people in one place and it worked out. And that is God's intention for his church in every period and in every time. So I want to be very clear about what a deacon is and what a deacon is not. So I'll start with what a deacon is not. A deacon is not expected to be what a pastor elder is, and we should not hold them to such an expectation. A deacon is not the House of Representatives or the U.S. Senate. Praise God. (laughs) A deacon is not a corporate board. You can serve as a deacon even if you never meet. 
In fact, we have a brother who's one of our deacons in our church right now. He came to me and uh, our deacon chair a couple of months ago, and he said, Pastor Josh, I am experiencing some serious health issues. And for that reason, I assume I'm disqualified to serve as a deacon. Now, this brother is one of the best brothers I've known in my life, and he's one of the best men we have in our church. So I said to him, would your health preclude you from continuing the service you're already known for being faithful in? And he said, well, no, I can still do those things. And I said, brother, I have good news for you. Deacons don't have to meet. You don't have to make any of the meetings. That's not what a deacon is. A deacon is someone who checks on the body, who looks after the widows, who cares for practical needs. And this brother does that as well as anybody ever has. So it doesn't matter that he doesn't have to make the meetings. Deacons are not a deliberative body. So what is a deacon then? Well, let me do a not and then a yes. Deacons are not really spreadsheet wizards or handymen. They are men who know their way around the Bible better than they know their way around Home Depot. Deacons are not really savvy business managers. They're servants and peacemakers to especially the neediest of the church. Deacons are not a board to direct. They're a cavalry of servants. Deacons do not serve with a motive to steer the ship. Deacons serve with a motive to alleviate the burden. Deacons, then, are glue that absorbs shock waves but holds the church together through faithful service. And what we read in Acts 6, 1 through 7, is that deacons are the unifying and recognized reliable servants apart from whom, as a church, we could never flourish. So this morning, as we pause to appoint people to this sober office, I hope that you'll rejoice with me that God has blessed us with servant-hearted people who are willing to serve behind the scenes and do so full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Because these servants exist for your unity. They exist for your practical needs. And through their service, the gospel can advance. But most of all, these servants exist because of the Son of God who came to serve us. Don't forget where we began. Jesus told these original servants, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This morning, if your need is to know Jesus, you can know God because the Son of Man served on a cross. His crown was thorns. His robe was a mockery. And his followers also are to take up our cross and follow him. And deacons and elders, when functioning properly, model this to the congregation. Let's pray together. God, I do thank you, Lord, that you and your word have given us something much, much better than the world's options. Thank you that we need not behave like our politicians. And we need not behave like our businessmen. But instead, we can behave like our Savior, who, though he was in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men, and humbled himself to the point of death, and not any death, but death on a cross. And Lord, through his sacrificial service, he has saved us from our sin, the sin that separates us from you. 
We only need to look to Him. And as His followers, may we be characterized by similar acts of service. And thank you, Lord, that we read that Jesus was not only humbled, but then He was exalted. And as we read from 1 Timothy 3, there is a great reward for deacons for their faithful service. As we pray for these men today, I pray also for their families. And I thank you for the reward that I feel that I have experienced being the son of a deacon. And what a blessing it's been to grow up watching service like that. And how it impacted my view of Christ and my view of you and my view of the church. And I pray that for these men. And I pray that for their families. And I thank you for our church and for the fact that it can be a distinctive light in the world as people love one another as Christ has loved us. In your name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.